Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dwight McKee, MD, and host Michael Lerner. This is part two of a two-part conversation titled Integrative Approaches to Cancer. Dwight McKee, welcome back to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you, Michael. You have been one of the deep pioneers of, uh, of uh, innovative, integrative cancer work in the United States. And that's a path that you and I have walked together in different ways for a very long time. And I know actually you're working on uh, an article for Keith Block's journal where you hope to review your 50 years of, of work in cancer. 48. 48. Uh, so... Um, if we turn to that now, um, let me ask you, if you were doing the outline for your article for Keith Block or for a short book that you might do on this, what would be the headings under which you would organize your 48 years of work on integrative cancer care? Historically, sort of take us through the major chapters. Well, you know, historically, in my own evolution, the first mentor that I had in, in uh, what at that time was what, what now would be called an alternative cancer therapy, at that time was called cancer quackery, Right. Um, was the nutritional program devised by the dentist, William Donald Kelly, which eventually became popularized by Nick Gonzalez, who basically transferred that program into his practice in New York City. And had a kind of ill-fated attempt to do a clinical trial that got messed up by politics and um, and the fact that it's very difficult to do clinical trials with complex, holistic, nutritional interventions. Uh, it's very hard to have a placebo, you know, for that. Um, but what I what I what I learned was that. Stage four cancer was reversible, not just, you know, one in a thousand times, but I could reverse it about 20% of the time with the Kelly program and things that I added to it. And I saw my patients who had oncologists who were working with me and they were getting better and they were able to do things they hadn't been able to do. They were needing less pain medicine and, and able to becoming more functional. And they'd go back to their oncologist for a visit and they'd, you know, tell them how about, about this, you know, they were taking all these supplements and that they were doing better. And, and their oncologist would say, well, you, you have stage four cancer. You know, the likelihood is high that you'll be dead in six months. And they would come back a, a, a completely demoralized person. And, and I would have to build them up Again, and this was one of the things that led me to, you know, I, I realized I need to be an oncologist. And I need to be able to instill hope. I mean, it was called false hope by the, the, uh, the oncologist of that day. What I was doing was called false hope. And I, I've learned that there is no such thing as false hope because... I have seen miraculous recoveries from people that were on hospice. Um, 
And you never know when that's going to happen. Um, people sometimes just make a decision to jettison all the things in their life that, were, that they thought they were trapped by and making them unhappy. And suddenly the light comes through and therapies start to work. Um, and the therapies don't work when the person feels trapped in an untenable life situation. And I, 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 I think that there is a percentage of, of cancer that occurs as a sort of unconsciously, unconscious form of suicide that's kind of socially acceptable. Um, but a huge amount of it also comes from the wholesale carcinogenizing of our environment and the industrialization of our food supply and the stress intensification of our lifestyles and the lack of exercise. That is a recipe for a cancer epidemic. That is a perfect storm. And it's good that we're getting better at treating cancer because I, I think we're going to have a lot more of it before we start to see a lot less of it. Because there's a 20-year time lag between the exposures that uh, end up developing in cancer. But the, the thing that is so hopeful is that now I, I, I can see, I, I have colleagues who are reversing stage four cancer in the majority of their patients, not the minority of their patients. And the fact that that's possible means to me that if we do the things we've talked about that need to be done to prevent the next pandemic, we'll also prevent the, the cancer pandemic, which we could be Can walking into more if we don't change our ways. Can you say more about uh, who the colleagues are who are reversing the majority of stage four cancer, uh, cancer cases? Um, one is Ralph Cleef, and uh, he's recently relocated from Vienna, Austria to Budapest, Hungary, um, using a, a, a sort of a very comprehensive uh, form of immunotherapy, um, getting a lot of complete responses in stage four cancer. Another is a, an interventional um, well, it's a new, really, hasn't been fully recognized, but it's being called in interventional oncology, which grew out of interventional radiology. So Jason Williams is another colleague and friend of mine who is doing his work in Mexico City because he's using um, elements in the, the immunotherapy cocktail that he injects into tumors after ablating them by freezing them uh, and finding, you know, what's the optimal amount of tumor to ablate. And he's also found other ways to ablate tumor rather than uh, heating it or freezing it. There's a, uh, an, actually a plant from um, Australia 
which when and when its extract is injected into tumors, they necrose. Uh, and so that uh, sort of approach with injecting a lot of um, immunotherapies. And um, I have another colleague, uh, Donnie Yance, who is a very gifted herbalist who knows a huge amount of molecular oncology, self-taught. Um, I've taught with him and we're, we're in the process of um, developing a two-year curriculum, a fellowship, really, in what he calls Madiri medicine. Um, and it's, it's kind of his approach. And I've, you know, I've recommended to patients who had the resources to do all three things. You work with Donnie's uh, very comprehensive nutritional and botanical uh, protocols uh, that involves, you know, smoothies with powdered extracts and tincture blends that are personalized and um, supplements of herbal concentrates and nutrients. <clears throat> um, and go to Jason to debulk their tumors immunologically and go to Ralph to, uh, for systemic immunotherapy, kind of as, as the last thing. And the last part of his therapy is a very carefully titrated um, infusion of interleukin-2, which, you know, was developed, it was one of the first cytokines developed um, and approved it was approved when I was in uh, my hematology oncology training at Scripps Clinic in the mid-90s. Um, really too toxic, very toxic when used the way it was used at the maximum tolerated dose. I mean, you had to put people in the ICU to do that. But he uses it to stimulate fever. At the beginning, he uses uh, hyperthermia, systemic whole body hyperthermia, which is a passive fever. And then at the end of the therapy, uh, using interleukin-2, titrating the dose, which is different, a different pattern for every patient, to get a, a fever of 103 to 104 degrees for a week. Now, that's, you know, that's a different kind of difficult therapy to go through than chemotherapy. And it doesn't have the aftermath that chemotherapy often uses. And he also uses some chemotherapy in limited amounts as, as part of his protocol along with immunotherapy. And there are, you know, there are many um, practitioners out there that I know a little bit about. Uh, there's a, a, a new field of naturopathic oncology and that was really championed by Cancer Treatments of Centers of America. Their model was to hire oncologists who would tolerate naturopaths and hire naturopaths who would tolerate oncologists and get them to work together. And the, the naturopaths had to go on the conservative side, you know, fish oil, vitamin D, and because oncologists are, it's just not part of oncology training that nutrients have anything to do with cancer. It's all about, you know, it's a it's a full-on military model attack on the tumor, uh, kill it with radiation and toxic drugs, and try to get the patient to survive. So um, after after you worked uh, with Donald Kelly, as you mentioned, and then 
his work after his death passed on to Nicholas Gonzalez, who I met in New York and uh, followed his work and his, as you say, the clinical trial that did not uh, go as well as one would have wished. Uh, but you went on to work with uh, a second extraordinary man who I met, Emmanuel Ravisi. Yes. So you learned a lot from, uh, from Kelly, but Emmanuel Ravisi, who was clearly a genius, a world he was a brilliant scientist. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little about Ravisi and what you learned from him. Well, Ravisi developed his own model. He was, he was born in 1896. He published his first paper in 1917. He um, was a medic in World War I, a, a, a doctor. Uh, in World War I. He was part of the resistance in World War II in Paris and ultimately fled to um, Mexico City and then to New York where he he uh, spent the rest of his life. He died in um, 1996, just, um, no, I'm sorry, 1998, just shy of his 102nd birthday. And he truly invented his own system of medicine. And he published a text in 1961, which took me three years to read and fully understand. It was very heavy in physical chemistry. And he focused on the lipids in cancer. And he had a dualistic system. He heard me lecture about Kelly's work at the time that I was taking care of the actor Steve McQueen. Uh, I was invited to a, a, a give a talk at... Um, but Omega Institute sponsored Cancer Dialogue 80. And they had uh, invited, the idea was to get alternative cancer doctors and oncologists to talk together. But the oncologists got wind of what was going on and they all left. And Ravisi was invited um, to, as, as a uh, sort of a hybrid. Ravisi was his own thing. He wasn't conventional. He wasn't alternative. He, it was his own science, but it was very science-based. And he, he, he was interested in me because Kelly had a dualistic model of sympathetic and parasympathetic dominance, which he learned to manipulate with diet and nutrients to balance the autonomic um, uh, nervous system. And so he had individualized diet all the way from vegetarian to you know, a spectrum through to heavy consumption of animal protein. Uh, Ravisi had a dualistic system based on the fatty acids, free fatty acids in tumors, and free sterols in tumors. And he called those with free sterols anabolic and anabolic off balance, and those with free, a, a predominance of free fatty acids, um, a catabolic off balance. And he used he made his own medicines. They were all lipidic. They were all fat-soluble lipids. And some of them required pretty um, sophisticated um, synthesis, uh, which, which he did, and he eventually kind of outsourced it uh, to other people to do, such as binding selenium to uh, a fatty acid called oleosteric acid conjugated with three conjugated double bonds. And he would heat it to a temperature so that the selenium would be incorporated as a hydroperselenide. 
And that was a very strong catabolic medicine. And so he would give that medicine to people with anabolic tumors. And he would treat catabolic tumors with anabolic medicine. So it was giving the opposite um, the opposite thing. And this gave me insights that I was able to apply in conventional oncology, uh, that I was able to apply in um, uh, integrative oncology, and um, that I, I, I think throw a lot of, of light on um, therapies such as the ketogenic diet. Fantastic for the anabolic off-balance. Not so good for the catabolic off-balance because ketones are catabolic. But this isn't something that's known. Um, and you know, I, I, I think I need to disseminate it a bit at this point because it's a, it's a very useful model both in a research setting and in the clinical setting. After you worked with Ravisi, uh, that was basically the point at which you decided to go back to, uh, was that the point uh, that you went back into training uh, in, in uh, conventional medicine, got your residency, uh, trained in internal medicine, and then specialized in oncology? Um, what, um, I think your point that you have a body of knowledge about integrative cancer care that, let's just put it this way, it's, it's very rare and it's very refined compared even to quite sophisticated integrative oncology practices. In other words, there's what I call integrative oncology light. I mean, you know that I served as the, I, I wrote Choices in Healing for MIT right. Plus. 25 years ago, and then I served as the NIH. chief consultant NIH. Then I served as the chief consultant for the Office of Technology Assessment on its report on conventional cancer treatments. And so, my goal in this field has been to be as objective as I can. Uh, but what happened? Because you and I both started this work when it was all considered cancer quackery, and I, I know I was told it would destroy my career. I'm sure you were told the same thing but we persevered. And so we watched the shift from it all being cancer quackery to now major cancer centers all have some kind of complementary cancer therapy or program. But it's what I call integrative oncology light, like light beer. You know, what is it? It's yoga, meditation, visualization, things music like therapy. that. Yeah, music therapy. All good. Uh, all good all things. Stuff. Supplements. Uh, not not going to go there. Right. Uh, a little bit on, you know, eat some fruits and vegetables. Right. And, and then a few outliers, notably Sloan Kettering, where the integrative oncology program is now focused on traditional Chinese medicine in a very sophisticated way. And uh, also there's a uh, major cancer center, I think, in Kansas that's done a lot of work with vitamin C. But those are yeah. outliers. Those are out. Right. So, and then you go into integrative medicine and you discover that, for example, the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, really has not focused on cancer because they have this organ system based approach. Um, and uh, Andy Weil's program in Tucson 
has done some work on cancer, actually is developing some cancer work uh, that is is really good. Um, and as you mentioned, for me at least, the naturopathic oncologists are a pretty bright light in the field. Yeah. Uh, uh, who, as you say, many of them trained with the Cancer Treatment Centers of America when CTA was doing that, but then CTA pulled back from that. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Dwight McKee and host Michael Lerner. So here we are today. You actually published a book with Jerry Lamole and one other co-author called After Cancer Care, which is... Um, uh, uh, yeah, which is a wonderful contribution. That said, we have all these different practitioners of different varieties of integrative cancer care, but by any reasonable standard, you you have more depth knowledge of different approaches than, let us just say, most of the practitioners. So that leads to the question you're writing this article for Keith Block, but at this point in your life and career, how do we maximize the contribution that you could make to practitioners and sophisticated patients really understanding what you have come to understand? How does that get done? Well, that's something I need to give a lot of thought to. Um, you know, I'm working in a, a project, I mean, which, which might go in that direction. But through that, I met a, a very, I, sh I should have mentioned when you asked me about practitioners getting more, you know, more than 50% um, complete responses now in stage four patients. Uh, very sophisticated in molecular oncology, although he's a family practice doctor, medical doctor, William uh, Will Lavallee. He's given a couple of talks to the Society for Integrative Oncology, which started as a very kind of mainstream group, really an oncology light group, as you said. Um, but he uh, he's given them several uh, talks on just really the concept. He's developing an artificial intelligence um, system that um, is... Um, has the potential to be able for, for physicians who are interested in taking care of cancer patients effectively, uh, who are going through conventional care or not, uh, and matching, being able to match with natural products and repurposed drugs. Um, that's why I was, have been alert to repurposed drugs in a situation like COVID because there are many uh, repurposed drugs in integrative oncology that are useful, such as metformin um, and Celebrex and, and others that uh, can, can fill, um, have important uses. And, and uh, so I think what the system that Will Lavallee is developing um, it also has great potential to be something that could, um, you know, then then you only need to teach the physicians how to manage them. I mean, it's kind of going back to the Kelly program, right? He, he had people answer 3,000 questions on, in the days of, you know, computers with cards, uh, card readers, and 
and they would answer on these cards and then he'd run them through his computer and he would print out a program. And then I was training people who had had cancer or were doctors who wanted to do it or were nutritionists. I was teaching them how to manage people on the program. And it would be, this would be a, you know, 2.0 or 3.0 version of that where there is, uh, I mean, you could have called Kelly's system an AI of sorts. It was in the kind of primitive era of, of our computer technology in the, developed in the, um, in the 70s. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm not sure how to, um, you know, I, wish, I wish we could uh, put everything in my brain on a chip <laughs> and, um, and, and, and leave it behind. So that, that, that's a that's a question that I don't have a, a big good question. answer to. Yeah, I have to insert here um, a, a perspective I have uh, on some of the people you mentioned that you believe are getting fifty to eighty percent uh, recoveries from stage four cancers, and uh, I deeply respect that assessment. Uh, I can't, in my experience, I can't confirm those percentages yet. Uh, I now, it, you know, I should qualify. In in Ralph Cleef's situation, yeah, he's good at getting complete responses, but they, um, the majority of them are not durable. Well, that's 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 what I meant. There's a way to make them durable. Yeah. The most profound thing, which I will write at length about in my article for Integrative Oncology, is oral copper chelation. Right. The problem with it is that it takes three years. You have to do blood tests every week and titrate the dose to get the copper level yeah. in the right range. But people who've achieved a CR, you can maintain that CR in a very large percentage. But um, Ralph just simply doesn't have access to that. Uh, to that medication um, called right. tetrathiomalibdenate. And, and because my job in this field is, to, in other words, one of the things that a clinician should do and that you do beautifully, both as a clinician and as a researcher, is to create this environment of authentic hope. Um, and part of my job is to come down the middle uh, and say when it is that I've seen data that confirms something and when I have yet to see it, which doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But there, one of the practitioners you mentioned, I didn't know. But the other practitioners, uh, uh, Ralph Cleef, uh, Donnie Yance, um, I don't know the guy in Mexico City, um, I I can't confirm those data points, you know. Well, I would I would say that Donnie's getting more than fifty percent um, complete responses. His therapy clearly prolongs um, functionality. Yeah, prolongs uh, uh, disease-free survival. Or not not necessarily disease-free survival, but prolongs survival. Right. And functionality and quality of life. Um, I would probably not put him as 
getting more than 50% complete responses. And the issue with Jason Williams is that he is always finding something new. He has, he's, he's essentially doing translational research. He has a lab at Case Western Reserve that he collaborates with. And they do animal model studies. And then he takes what they find in the animal models and he translates that into his, into his practice. And so it's a constantly evolving system. And it's my hope that he will, at some point, reach a point where he's satisfied with it, bring it back to the U.S., file INDs, and do a rigorous clinical trial of his best therapy. But it's, it's in progress. You know, it's a, a changing landscape. And, and I'm quite certain that if Ralph was able to implement uh, oral copper chelation, that he could preserve those CRs that he's good at getting, um, but not good at maintaining. Yeah, I think it's very important that you're making the case that these people uh, uh, can get um, uh, complete remissions, but not necessarily lasting ones. And as you pointed out, the copper therapy is challenging to do. And to is it fair to say, to your knowledge, you haven't seen a um, a clinical trial or a strong strong evidence sufficient to say that it um, it actually, in a lasting way, reverses cancer. Well, you know, if you can get a if you can get a CR, right. And a complete response, and follow that with copper chelation. There, um, a very good clinical trial was done in New York um, at Cornell Cornell Weill Medical Center with high risk breast cancer patients. So they were um, they were women who'd had all known evidence of cancer removed, plus or minus chemotherapy, plus or minus radiotherapy. But they were high risk. A lot of them were triple negative. And um, they were treated with two years of um, copper chelation, not using uh, their, their, excuse me, their target ranges were not as low as those that I used. And they didn't use it as long. And their results were not as good as what I saw. But when, whenever you see something in practice, you know, you have selection bias and all of these things. It's never as good in a clinical trial. But nevertheless, the long-term survival in that trial has been above 50% in these um, NED, high-risk, uh, many stage, stage four NED um, breast cancer patients. So the best therapy, bar none, in stage four NED, stage four with no evidence of disease, that that group, the relapse probability is very close to 100%. And copper chelation for three years, um, in my hands, I had very few failures the, uh, with an N of about 50. Well, that's really helpful. And that's something I will want to follow up on with you. You know, we keep talking about our randomized clinical trials as a as an approach to these things. Randomized clinical trials are appropriate for some kinds of medicine, but by no means for all, as we know. There are a whole bunch where you can't do it, and they're also very expensive, very time-consuming. And so 
I've always been fascinated by um, uh, uh, patient, um, you know, patient databases of successful cases. Uh, that's what the Office of Technology Assessment ended up recommending as an approach to appraisal of complementary therapy, complementary cancer therapies. And then they created uh, the uh, OCCM, the Office of Complementary uh, Cancer, Alternative Cancer Medicine. And, um, and they set up a, a patient a, a database, but they've never had a single therapy that made it through their system. Uh, and you know, into uh, into a clinical trial. One of the problems with the system of assessment is that it was it was limited to alternative therapies. If it was integrated, they wouldn't deal with it. And I think that was a mistake because the I think the you know my choice to go back and devote six years of my life to three years of internal medicine training in the hospital and three years of um, Clinic, uh, uh, medical oncology and hematology was a good choice um, because I really, I really learned the way that system works and I learned what's useful about it. And I learned after I started practicing, after finishing it, um, how to balance it with nutrients and botanicals and lifestyle. And I, I think that, you know, the integrated system is far more powerful, far more effective than either one alone. Um, I completely agree with that. And I recognize you're in Germany, it's late your time, but what, what would you like to say at this point in uh, moving toward a conclusion here? What have we not covered? that you'd really like to make sure we talk about? Well, you know, I, I want to elaborate a bit more on the fear issue. Um, you know, the, the pandemic has induced a lot of fear. People have a lot of fear about getting COVID because it's unpredictable and so forth. But people who are well-nourished uh, and in good health and use nutraceuticals when they get sick generally handle it well. Um, I think that the, the best remedy for the global panic is the vaccine. It, it does have biological effect, but it will also have a massive group placebo effect. And that's another thing that I think is worth discussing and studying is what we call the placebo effect on the individual level, where a doctor is giving knowingly an inactive substance to a patient and telling them that it's a powerful medicine. And a percentage of people get powerful healing responses to that. When the doctor no longer thinks that's an inactive medicine, and maybe it is an inactive medicine, but if the doctor believes as well as the patient and communicates that belief that this is a powerful medicine, that placebo effect is something like squared. And if you have a thousand people believing that something is a very powerful medicine or a hundred thousand or a hundred million or three billion, that becomes very powerful. It may actually be how 
the physical reality that we live in is being created moment to moment by mass consciousness. There are theories about that in, um, in metaphysical circles that go way, way back. And I've had some experience with that. Um, so I, I think that the, 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 the vaccine largely will get us out of the pandemic in part due to a massive group consciousness effect of feeling protected. No, that's and, which is based on science. I mean, it's a good analogy to the yeah. nutritional supplements. Hmm. Uh, but this is, gonna, this is a fair, you know, this is probably one of the biggest group um, consciousness effects. And I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. I think the pandemic will, will fade and the lockdowns will go away and this will drift into memory because of the vaccination, which is only probably only partly due to its biological immunological effect and in possibly even a larger um, factor being the group confidence in it. I've been vaccinated. I'm protected now. Mm. And uh, so there is the fear's gone. I've been vaccinated. I'm protected. I have my shield around. Yeah, that's just wonderful. And and we're both well aware that the placebo, the literature on the power of placebo is, is very well grounded. Wayne Jonas, he has a beautiful little book where he looks at complementary therapies and talks about the power of ritual as yeah. sent. How healing how healing works. That's a wonderful right. and and again, ritual and placebo are are almost exactly. different words for the same thing. Yeah, yeah. People taking their supplements every morning and every evening, that's a ritual. Taking your medication, that's a ritual. Well, Dwight McKee, thank you so much for spending this time with us again at the New School. Friend, colleague, a fellow traveler for many decades in this work, and thank you for your immense contribution to cancer care and to so much more. That's really my pleasure, really my pleasure to spend this time with you on our on our new uh, Zoom reality. Right, exactly, exactly. Take very good care. We'll talk soon. You too. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Dwight McKee and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.